Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Our decisions are one of the biggest factors in determining the quality of our lives. We make as many as 35,000 decisions every day. Most are small, like, when will I get out of bed? And some can be big, like, who will I marry? Or where will I go to college? And when you think about it, every decision we make is essentially a bet. It is a bet that we will be happy we made that decision. And yet as humans, we have many biases that inhibit good decision-making. For example, shocking as this may sound, we tend to change facts in order to accommodate our beliefs when it should be the opposite. We actually need to be able to change our beliefs in order to accommodate new facts. Making matters worse, we generally don't have good systems in place to analyze our decisions to get better at making similar decisions next time. My guest on this episode is a true expert when it comes to decision-making. Annie Duke has nearly finished her doctorate in psychology from the University of Pennsylvania, but it gets way more interesting. She has also made high-stakes decisions for many years as one of the most successful professional female poker players of all time. She has also authored several best-selling books, including Thinking in Bets, which has been hailed by the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Forbes, and by luminaries in business like Mark Andreessen. Annie provides keen and actionable insights into how we are blind to our decision-making processes and real-world solutions to improving this crucial skill. So listen in as Annie and I have a conversation about thinking in bets. Annie Duke, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, likewise, I've been geeking out to your work and I have been seeing a huge missed opportunity by, frankly, the school systems nationally to incorporate a decision-making class for children. If you think about it, and I know you have, the quality of our life depends on the quality of our decisions. And yet there are no thoughtful courses on how to cultivate the skills necessary that your books actually provide. And you somehow have figured out a way to make them highly intellectually fascinating, really entertaining and useful. I don't know how you did all three, but somehow you did. And I think it's time that we have classes for children and people of all ages and age appropriate manners that help cultivate exactly the skill sets you talk about. Oh my gosh. First of all, thank you so much for that. That's <laughs> nice. Yeah. So this is why I co-founded the Alliance for Decision Education, because what is your life but luck plus the quality of your decisions? And, and the thing is that you can't do anything about luck. So I know there's the aphorism, you make your own luck, but you don't. Luck is external to you and it's a force that acts upon you. Randomness is luck. You could call it stochastic, like whatever term you use. These are just forces that are acting upon you that you can't control. I think that what people mean when they say you make your own luck is that 
there are certain decisions that will make it more likely that you right. that luck will go your way. And there are certain decisions that will make it less likely that luck will go your way. If we think about good outcomes versus bad outcomes, that with the decisions that I make, I can change the distribution of good and bad outcomes in a way that's more favorable to me. So that's not making your own luck. That's making good decisions that change the sort of downside influence of luck on your life. So the thing that's I think is interesting about decision education is that we don't teach it in schools. And you can't really say, but it's hard to teach because we teach trigonometry and that's hard. Exactly. But trigonometry isn't that useful, by the way. Um, (laughs) In decision making. So I think that it goes into this category of when you ask parents or adults about decision making, I think people in general think they're pretty good decision makers. I don't know that most people realize that this is something that can be taught, that it's a skill that you can hone, you can become much better at it, that there's a lot of really deep scientific work that's been done on that. I think that Kahneman coming out with Thinking Fast and Slow has helped people to understand that this is a very deep space and in kind of a more popular way. But, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you've been making decisions your whole life. You've been walking your whole life. So why would we need to teach it? We don't teach walking to kids either. But I think this is one of the most important things to teach. And it's just a matter of, I think, getting people to recognize the need. And the thing that I sort of analogize it to the most is social emotional learning, which I think a decade ago was in kind of the same category as decision education. Well, why would we need to teach that? That's like a parent is teaching that. Like, aren't teachers already teaching kids to have high EQ and be well socialized and whatever. And then I think that people realize, no, this is a real need. And they made space for it in the school day in terms of thinking about whole child and how to recreate really great adults. And now all of a sudden, social emotional learning is everywhere. And we'd like to have the same thing happen for decision education. I really hope it is so. And in terms of walking, you know, a good PT will teach an adult how to walk and to reconsider how they walk with regard to posture. But before we go and geek out to decision science and decision making processes, let's just talk about you as a card player. You were a psychology grad student at the University of Pennsylvania, I'm guessing with Seligman and some of the other greats in that same department. And then you pivot, go to Montana, start playing cards, little tip from your brother, if I'm not mistaken, on how to play cards. And then you crush it in the card playing field. Can you just talk a little bit about you and your evolution as a card player before we go into the decision making? We can. But before we do, I just want to quibble with the word pivot. I quit. So one of my big missions, and this is something I'm working on actually in my next book, is to rehabilitate the word quit. Mm. So we have all these euphemisms for quit, like pivot, goal disengagement, but it's quitting. What's wrong with quitting? Honestly, if the world changes, if your preferences change, when new information comes in, you should quit. And I think that's a good thing when you actually react to the world in an appropriate way. So, you know, I think that's a great point. Like, think about negative valence that you use the word pivot. Yeah. It's like quitting is neither good nor bad. It's if you're quitting at appropriate times, it's a really good thing. If you're quitting too early, it's a bad thing. So I quit. I have just been schooled. I love that. We see the value of perseverance and it plays into the hero's journey and it's such a big part of our culture, like this idea of persevering through like danger and near death and coming out the other side. And there's this just real mythologizing of, yes. of that journey. And I think it's the same thing with grit. Grit can be very good. And obviously uh, there's a reason why Angela Duckworth's work is so popular because it Thank is you know. actually, you do need grit. 
there's no question there, there are huge positives to grit, but obviously there's a downside of grit, which is perseverance in the face of information that tells you you should no longer be persevering. And all you have to do is look at the top of Everest because they can't remove those bodies to see what the downside of grit is. I think that we need to stop thinking of these as oppositional forces. We need to realize that this is about calibrating between the two. And it's good calibration between the grittiness and the quittiness that's really going to get us to a a great place in terms of our decision making. So I'm just going to make the case for I did not pivot. I quit. I love that so much. And you're you just really got me in a very visceral zone with regard to Mount Everest. Yes, I have read about Mount Everest. I watched the movies and there are bodies up there to this day as evidence that sometimes quitting might be the better move. Yeah, apparently, actually, they talk about markers along the way, like we need to be at a certain place at a certain time. It's either on Everest or another mountain where they say you need to be at green boots at a particular time. And what they mean by green boots is some guy died who had green boots on. And when you go by that body, you need to have passed that body by a certain time. It like becomes a time marker. There's a lot of bodies up there. I would imagine all those people possibly persevered too long because they're dead. So there you go. But so this is the thing, like quitting is totally fine. So I I quit, I quit. So anyway, I started playing poker. Let's go back to 1994, which is when all of this was happening for me, not on television (laughs) at all. You were introduced to poker through like, you know, there was like the Cincinnati kid, right? Like, or something like that, right? People have like their Wednesday night home games or something like that. But it was definitely not something that people thought about as a profession. And for most people, if I said, I'm thinking about playing poker, I could easily have been said, I'm thinking about dealing drugs. (laughs) For sure. So there's actually like a parallel evolution between drugs and poker. They both become much more legitimized. But in 1994, it was the war on drugs and poker was a vice. Right. But when I told people I'm playing poker, they would ask me like, oh, do you have a system? Because if I was playing like roulette, like a roulette system, which of course, by the way, there is no system at roulette that will allow you to win. Or, you know, a lot of times they would whisper to my husband at the time, have you thought about Gamblers Anonymous? People didn't really get it. It was really firmly in vice. And the idea that it was anything other than gambling, which gambling by definition is negative expected value. You're supposed to lose it. At, that's what the definition of gambling is. It was a very strange thing for me to be doing. Now, the only reason that I happened to know about it is, as you said, my brother, who had gone off to New York in like 1983 to go study with a chess grandmaster. So he was like super into chess. He was very good. He had a master's rating and he wanted to play chess for like real. I mean, he he had been playing tournaments, obviously. That's how he got his rating, but he wanted to study with a grandmaster. And this was when he was like 18 years old. And he went off and fell into the games world. And through playing chess, he found backgammon and poker. And so he had already been playing for 10 years and he had really gone through like more of the school of hard knocks. So he had the pain of losing for the first couple of years. In fact, he had a, a small college fund built up in which he lost in his, that was sort of his payment for the poker education. But by the time this all happens to me, he's already been at the final table of the world series of poker. And he's quite good. He's really one of the best players at this point in the country, probably in the world. So when I went off to Montana, it got married and went off to Montana and the kind of like catalyst for this was that I got sick and I needed to take a year off from graduate school. So I needed to figure out like, okay, how am I going to make some money? And I needed flexible hours because I didn't feel well. There was like a bunch of stuff going on. And my brother was the one who just said, I think there are poker games in Montana. So why don't you try playing? And I had spent enough time like sitting behind him 
when he was playing to, you know, have a pretty good understanding of the game. And he gave me some pointers and some tips. And the thing is that when you have like someone who's world champion level coaching you and you're playing against people who do not take the game that seriously or haven't had that kind of education and there weren't a lot of books on poker available, people weren't watching it on TV, the gap between good and great was like huge that I could sit down, I could start winning right away, which I did. I, I started winning in the first month that I played. And, and then I just, I didn't go back to academics until now I'm back in academics. Many years later, I circled back around. So that's kind of how I end up like at a poker table, weirdly, having quit academics. And I've just got to ask, after those thousands of hours of studying cards and poker and decision-making, do you still enjoy playing cards as a thing? So I retired in 2012. I play sometimes in like charity events now, but I don't play for real at all. There was an evolution in the thinking for me in terms of playing, which is the game is like amazing. It's endlessly fascinating. It's it's like peeling back an onion, but the layers are infinity. So every time you peel something back and you think you've discovered something, it's just there's so much more beneath it. So you're constantly learning. The game itself changed a lot while I was playing. Because when it did end up on TV, there was this huge influx of players and they, a lot of what they were doing was really bad, but some of it was actually quite innovative and you had to figure that out and what is bad, what is actually good and innovative. And that's hard in a game where there's a lot of luck. So you don't know, is this a short-term thing or a long-term thing? Like it, it actually becomes very hard to pull that apart. So that created a really interesting challenge. The internet came along, which also increase the number of people who are playing and then computing power made it so that people could actually start to run simulations and do some more solving of the game, which also innovated the game and that across a whole bunch of different games, like the way that backgammon is played now that computers, actually, you can run simulations on the computers is very different than the way that backgammon was played like 30 years ago. Same thing with chess, all of these games, once you get simulations involved, it really reveals different strategies to the humans who are trying to solve these games. And so that's true of poker as well. So there's a lot of ways in which the game was changing also. And trying to keep up with that was really interesting and super, super challenging. So I always loved all of that. The thing that I don't love about poker and didn't love about poker is that my job is to make you sad. That is literally my job is to make you sad because I'm trying to take your chips. Exactly. Poker is not fun. It's this really interesting thing about poker that if you're playing for an amount of money that doesn't matter to you, it will not be fun for you. You you really have to be playing for amount of money that matters to you in order to make it interesting. Unless you get to some other level deep. So if I play one and two penny poker, it's fun for me, but that's because my goal is not like the number of chips that accumulate in front of me. It's actually sort of the solution to the situation that I'm sitting in. And that's something that happens with elite players is they disconnect themselves from the money portion. But that's not true of most people who are playing. They need to play for an amount of money that matters. So by definition, if I'm doing my job well, I'm making the other people at the table sad. Exactly. And what I realized was in the first six or eight years that I was playing, the game itself had me like so absorbed that... I didn't ever really look up and say what's happening around me in terms of the way that the people around me are presenting themselves to me. So I was in their head in terms of you have to be in their head and to play poker well. So I was in their head in terms of figuring out what they had, modeling their play, trying to figure out what would their response to what I'm doing? What do I think they're holding? That kind of thing. 
But I wasn't really that worried about what's the psychological or emotional environment that I'm spending all of my time in because I was so deep into this solution of the game. But I think that as I got older and as I, a lot of the really core stuff in the game, I started to figure out a little bit more so I could look up a little bit more. What I realized was that poker by nature kind of forces you to be interacting with sort of the worst version of the people at the table with you. And it can cause you to have somewhat of a dark view of humanity because the way I think about it is like everybody has like their A plus version and their D version. Right, right? the angel on each shoulder, like the devil. Everything in between. We all have bad days where we're a total jerk and we have great days where we're like amazing. And obviously everybody's baseline is different, right? Some people are certainly in general nicer than others. But even the nicest people have bad days. And even the people who are crappy have good days. And because of the nature of the game, I just ended up interacting with sort of the crappiest version Mm. of the people that I was sitting with so often. And it started to grind me down. And as I looked at people who had been in the game for a really long time, like the older players who are like in their 50s, you have... The people like Eric Seidel, who like is just amazing no matter what. And by the way, he doesn't have a D version at the table because he's just he's <laughs> and he's he's now I think he's 60 now or close to it. And uh, yeah. he's great. He's happy. How he's done that is by not spending all of his time in the he has a very full life. He travels a lot. He loves music. He loves art. He has a place in New York that he tries to spend tons of time at. So he's just not 24 seven at a poker table. But the people who really were like poker was the only thing that they had in their life. They just, they were miserable. I mean, that was the thing that I always saw. I just didn't see a lot of examples of super happy 50-year-old poker players who had been playing for their whole life. And I think that there's a reason for that because of the nature of this sort of emotional exchange that's going on. So what happened to me was that in 2002, which was eight years in, I just, uh, an accident, Eric actually got asked to to give a talk to a group of options traders about how poker might inform risk. And Eric happens to hate public speaking. And he knew that when I was at Penn for five years, obviously I was teaching as one does in graduate school. And so he just recommended me and said, I think Anna would be good for this. And so that was a guy named Roger Lowe. And so he invited me to come talk to the traders. And I started explicitly thinking about what's the relationship between the cognitive science that I've been doing and poker. And I, I just like, really saw like in the same way that that poker just so completely grabbed me intellectually, this conversation, like this space between poker and cognitive science, it was like I just got sucked into that pit because it was like so exciting to start to think in an explicit way about the relationship between those two things. That's what I talked to them about that day. And then Roger, I think, recommended me to a few people. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's a business here and I can start to think and write in this space. And I started thinking about it from both sides. So I started teaching poker from like a decision frameworks Mm -hmm. kind of perspective. But then I also started working with businesses and thinking about decision-making through the framework of poker as it was informed. How does the science get informed by this poker problem, which is such high uncertainty? What happens when you introduce that much uncertainty into decision-making? And so slowly but surely, what I found is I was spending less and less time at the poker table and more and more time on this other stuff. And I think that's like an interesting way that your preferences get revealed, which is just like, how do you allocate your time? And I just found myself allocating much less time to actually sitting at a poker table. 
and spending a lot more time teaching poker because I love to teach and lots and lots of time with like with businesses and starting to develop this consulting business. So in 2012, I kind of, you know, there were a variety of reasons, but one of them was just, I wanted to go write this book and I wanted to be really more deeply in this space. So I retired from poker and started spending my time thinking and writing. I founded the Alliance for Decision Education, which we talked about. And then at some point in the process of writing, thinking and bets, I had already been connected with Phil Tetlock and Barb Mellers who are at Penn, who are amazing. Mm-hmm. And Phil was like incredibly helpful on thinking and bets. And we kept in touch. And at some point it was, what would you think about buttoning up that PhD? And you know what? Yeah, why not? So I'm back working with them. And if my research turns into a PhD, cool, but the research is like really amazing anyway. And I love working with them. And so boom, full circle. There you go. So you're quite and you're back. And instead of the outcome of your efforts being making someone else happy, you're actually trying to help people bet on their happiness through better decision-making processes. And one of the things that you talk about in your book, and we're going to get into the decision-making science now is we have been charged with the abilities to survive mechanisms and biases. And yet those same mechanisms and biases tend to interfere with our decision-making processes, including the post-game analysis after we've made decisions, which may be at least as important, if not more important than the decisions themselves in certain ways. Can you talk a little bit about those biases and how they might interfere with good decisions? Yeah. Okay. So I love that you started off with what were our skills developed for? And if we go back to this idea, like things are neither good nor bad, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, they can have good qualities. Just thinking makes qualities. it so. Our decision-making involved to deal with very, very small groups, very limited territory and survive the day. That's the strategy. <laughs> Evolution doesn't select for surviving a lifetime. Evolution selects for get to the end of the day and then we'll try again the next day. It's basically what it selects for. So small groups, limited territory, survive till the end of the day. So what does that mean? So that's great, by the way, in those circumstances. But what it means is that we're going to have a very high rate of false positives. And you can see why that is. If I eat a berry and I get sick, it's really good if I never go near that berry. (laughs) Even if it wasn't the berry that made me sick. But that's just a better strategy. It's a correlation between having eaten that berry and then perhaps a false positive or perhaps an accurate positive. But right. But it could be accurate. It could be not. Right. Um, When there's I think I say in one of my books, if there's rustling in the grass, just run away. Exactly. Don't be like, oh, I wonder if there's a lion. Because the people who did that and decided to run a controlled experiment are dead. Yep. So uh, they're no bloodline. <laughs> no bloodline. Right. The controlled experiment people who are like, <laughs> I'm skeptical that this is a lion. They died enough of the time. So that's a good example of one of the ways in which we get messed up is that we have very high sensitivity, is what it would be called, and low specificity. And then when we think about this idea of like get to the next day, that's going to create pretty poor intertemporal choice for us. We can think about what's good for us in the long run. So a good example of this is it w- would be our diet. So when you're limited territory, low technology, make it till the end of the day, if there's a pile of sugar sitting in front of you, you should want to eat all of it. Because you just, you don't know it's an uncertain environment. Exactly. You don't know when are you going to see sugar again. It's very high energy. This is really good for our brains. It's going to help us get to the end of the day. Now, Obviously, that's not great long run if you do that every single day. 
which is basically what Americans do or some Americans do. Right. Uh, because we're not really programmed in any way to say no, because there's such an evolutionary advantage to eating what's in front of you when food sources can be quite uncertain. So that's like another example of like our decision making wasn't really built like it was built for a different type of decision. Now, we're still left with this mind where as we move into now an environment where we don't operate in small groups, we're a global species and we communicate globally and our resources are not scarce and limited in the way that they were before. For some people, they are certainly not for the average American. For some Americans, they are as well, but also, again, not for the average American. We really don't live in a space that's scarce resources. And interestingly enough, for Americans that do have scarce resources, the sugar and fat is actually the cheaper, more available, right? Mm, So so uh, it is when you do have scarce resources, McDonald's cheeseburger is actually quite economical in terms of like calories, fat, so on and so forth, because it costs like a dollar compared to a head of broccoli, which is not going to deliver the same caloric punch. And it's going to cost you like two bucks. So we have some weird incentives anyway, Mm. but we're not ideally our decision-making would be built to say, I'm not going to worry too much about what's good for me this second. What I care about is what's good for me in the long run, but that's not the way we were built. Nope. So this is why, this is a big reason why we need to teach decision-making. And it's not just about, we have to eat food in the short run, but there's a lot of biases that are just driven by this, really this need that we have to update our self-image in a positive way. Our identities are very much wrapped up in like our beliefs and we want the world to be orderly. We don't like randomness. We want to believe that we have control over our destiny. We, we want to know that we can create the outcome that we want the next day if we just do things well. We don't like to believe that we're wrong. That would be a really bad hit for our identity. And now we get into the same problem as sugar. The way that we interpret the world is to affirm our identities. It's to affirm the beliefs that we have. It's not necessarily to figure out what's true. Mm. And so you can see how this relates to like the sugar problem. In the long run, it's better for me to figure out what's true. Because if I can figure out what's true, the inputs into my decisions are going to be much better. My decisions will be more accurate and, and the quality of those decisions will accrue over time such that I have better outcomes in the long run. But Absolutely. what that means is, yeah, in the short run, what does that mean? Sometimes I'm going to have to say I'm wrong. And I love that skill, the ability to say I'm wrong, like a post-game analysis after a relationship, after a breakup. How did I contribute? Where was I blind? What do I need to know? In addition to, of course, the pats and the compassion that we get from our friends and the empathy. And then a deep dive into, and what was I missing? How was I blind? I think cultivating that ability to sit with that and to do a post-mortem and a pre-mortem, to use our terms, for the next relationship will bode much better. Or whatever it might be, a business venture, a car accident, anything. What did I do wrong? And one of the creepiest things that I read in your book about being human is we are more likely to change facts to accommodate our beliefs than we are willing to change our beliefs to accommodate new facts. Hello, politics. Oh, it creeped me out. It was so succinctly put. And a hallmark, as we know, of psychological well-being is cognitive flexibility. And we are wired to be rigid, the opposite of cognitively flexible. That's Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And I think this goes back to this idea of what's the motivation of our thinking. And the motivation of our thinking is I want to feel good about myself. I want to know that my beliefs are true. I don't like to feel like I made a mistake. I don't like to think, think that things are my fault. 
And so this is a pattern called motivated reasoning. In other words, your reasoning is motivated to support the beliefs that you have. So we have the intuition that information is in the driver's seat, that there's a bunch of facts out there and I'll look at the facts and I'll look at the information and I'll view it objectively as right. an object and I'll examine it from different angles and think about it in the context of other things that I know and I'll get the information. And then depending on what the outcome of that vetting process is, I'll change my beliefs to fit with what's accurately true of the world, or maybe I'll reject the evidence or whatever. But what actually happens is that our beliefs are in the driver's seat. And when we see information, we'll accommodate it to our belief, right? We'll make it fit with our beliefs. So we'll either reject it if it goes against our beliefs or we'll accept it blindly or interpret it in a way that allows us to cling tight to our beliefs. And, and you, obviously you can see this in, in politics so clearly, right? Two people can be looking at the exact same set of facts. The information is there. It's sitting right in front of you. Like the information is often not even in dispute. And yet one person's like, this makes me believe my position more. And another person's like, this makes me believe my position even more. So you could take something like, you know, this is particularly true of emotionally charged. So two people can look at a school shooting and one person says, see, this is why we need to get rid of guns. And another person says, so this is why we need to arm up because we need to protect ourselves against these crazy school shooters. So both of them are looking at the same set of facts. They're really looking at the same down. information and they're actually becoming more apart. Like they, they become more apart in their beliefs. So that's really obvious when you're looking at like these politically charged beliefs. And then we have this issue of something called naive realism. I don't know if mm. you've heard about this bias, but let's hear about it. So basically what naive realism is, is that we believe that the things that we think are true, the way that we view the world is true. And that every, obviously that we've discovered something that's like fundamentally true. And so if other people don't believe what we believe, they must be evil or stupid. Take your pick. And that's yeah, so clearly not a great way to go. There's a really nice mental model that people can apply to help themselves past naive realism. So I, people have probably heard of Occam's razor, which is mm -hmm. like the solution is usually correct. There's something called Hanlon's razor, hmm. which is essentially never attribute to malice what you can contribute to being uninformed, basically. So that just helps you to stop thinking that people are evil who happen to hold different opinions than you. And that's, by the way, not to say that I'm denying that evil exists in the world. I sure. endorse that. I don't endorse the evil. I endorse the I idea understood. Evil, I understood what you meant. That evil lives in the world. <laughs> but thanks for clarifying, also, nonetheless. You know, a lot of people just have different points of view than you do. And, and I think that we need to just say, sometimes people just have different points of view. And I need to not assume that they're idiots. And I need to not assume that they're evil. And sometimes you can two people can just look at the same thing and come to a different conclusion and i should have to and in defending my position by the way in a way that is not a straw man really good things are going to happen to me because i'm going to understand my position better and it's going to be more likely i change my mind assuming assuming that i'm not arguing against a straw man i really have to not argue against a straw man there so what's really wonderful is when you bring two people together who have really opposing positions who are really well-informed, but are also arguing in good faith, only good things come from that conversation. And, and when you say good faith, I can only intuit that you mean that both of them realize that they're in equal pursuit of the truth and willing to change their positions. That's right. And one of right. my favorite ideas, and I'm actually going to pivot 
But one of my favorite ideas is if you're going to engage in a debate of some kind, show up with the willingness to be informed in a new way and to change your position. And I think that's really crucial. I think it's just an important skill. I do want to talk about resulting. I love that term. And it's a game changer in terms of bringing it to our awareness. Most people, as you've talked about, when they think about their great decisions, they're actually focused on the results and not the decisions themselves. I was wondering if you talk about resulting versus decisions. Okay. So here's a problem that we have as decision makers is that very often when we're trying to decide about something that is really complicated and hard to figure out, we'll substitute in a judgment of something easier. An example of that would be if I'm interviewing a job candidate, I'm trying to figure out how much I like them or how good I think they're going to be in the job. Like that's pretty complicated, right? Like there's a lot of unknowns and they've never been in the job and getting them to an interview and a CV and it's hard. So when you ask me how good the candidate is, I might substitute in like a judgment of their charisma. So this, that happens actually a lot. That's a very common substitution that happens. So resulting is a substitution. Determining decision quality is quite hard. In order to do that, you need to have lots and lots of information about the decision. So you need to recognize what was the information that the person had available at the time? What kind of effort did they put into finding out new information? What were the options that they had to choose from for any option that they were thinking about? What were the possible outcomes? What was the probability of those things occurring? How did those options compare to each other when you actually do that probabilistic work? What were their values? You can see, I can, it's just very complicated. Right. Do you know what's not complicated? How'd it turn out? Exactly. Good or bad. The example that I open thinking in bets with is Pete Carroll right. in 2015 against the New England Patriots. In the Super Bowl. In the Super Bowl. And fourth it's the quarter. fourth quarter, 26 seconds left in the game. They're on the one yard line down by four, second down. Pete Carroll has one timeout. All right, so this is all the facts you need to know. Got to move the ball one yard. He's got 26 seconds to do it in, including the timeout, which gives him a little something. And he's got one of the world's greatest running backs. Marshawn Lynch. For sure. But he also has Bill Belichick on the other side and right. like a lot of very large Patriots defensemen. Yes. Oh, so, okay. I know. <laughs> I love so, so we, we all know what happens, right? He calls a pass play. <laughs> Surprise. Shock. Play. It was a shocker. It was a shocker. And the ball is intercepted by Malcolm Butler. That's the end of the game. And it's, you should just go back and look at the headline. Uh, West Side Story. Was it the worst play in Super Bowl history or the worst play in the NFL history? And yes. let's have a street fight about it. Totally. So 538. And then uh, I think Vox had a writer who were saying, you know what? This actually wasn't that bad a play, but it was like a few low voices in the wilderness. The big outlets were all like, this is the worst play in Super Bowl history. And yet, of course, just I have to name it. If it bleeds, it leads. And the guys on 538 and Vox were actually thinking about the decision itself, not the outcome. That's correct. So they, so they were not thinking about the result. They were not falling prey to this error in human judgment, which is called resulting, which is, Instead of judging the decision quality, I'm judging the quality of the outcome and I'm using that to determine the quality of the decision. Totally. Now, it's very easy to do the thought experiment. What if that ball were caught for the game-winning touchdown? And it's very clear the headlines would not have been worst play in Super Bowl history. They would have immediately switched to best play in Super Bowl history. Exactly. Like a genius. 
And by the way, Andy Reid just got called a genius for calling a weird pass play in a spot where people thought he should punt. And it happened to work out. I haven't even worked out the math on that, but it seems a little odd because if it's incomplete, you can't, the clock doesn't keep running. Whereas if you run the ball, it does, I'm not even, I don't even understand. I haven't thought about it enough. I just know that people really like the play because it happened to work out. Andy, so, I just have to, I just have to say this. Wouldn't it be great to live in a society that recognized that Pete Carroll made a thoughtful decision in spite of the fact that the outcome itself wasn't what yeah. it should, would, would have been the win. There's so many ways that our society would be better. And by the way, it wasn't a thoughtful decision. It was actually, in my opinion, a brilliant decision. And, and you explain quantifiably yeah. why 2% the chance. The simple reason failed. like outside of the thought experiment is, remember I said he's got 26 seconds left in second, third, and fourth down yeah. to give it a go. This is all you need to know. If, if you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch and he fails, the clock keeps running, Pete Carroll calls a timeout. And then if he hands it off to Marshawn Lynch and he fails again, that's it. So if you hand it off to Marshawn Lynch twice as your first two choices, you get two tries, you get two downs. And if Bill and Belichick has, has, has mustered up a defense to of course, fight against by the that. way, just so you know, like Marshawn Lynch is amazing outside the red zone, but as with most running backs, he's not great in the red zone. Why? Um, because did, they're oh. all like right there. Oh, so I think he's only 20%. In the red, by so, the way. so if you actually look at it as a side-by-side -side comparison, it's it's actually Carroll, not that as usual, who's a brilliant coach, brilliant. Yeah. One of the one of the all-time greats. Thank God people. Right, but everybody remembers them like, for that for that one play. Oh, so, please. so here's the thing. If you call a pass play, I don't care if it's on second or third down. I don't care if you choose it first or choose it second. But if you call a pass play and it's and it fails, yeah. the clock doesn't keep running. It stops. So what that means is that if you get a pass play in on second sense. or third down, you get three downs to right, try to right. get right instead of two. And so then the, the only question you have to ask is what's the cost of that? And the cost of that's going to be the interception rate, which is between one and 2%. So it's actually like a super brilliant play because he bought himself at a third try. And especially with the quarterback, Russell Wilson, who's so good, like yeah. the chances were low. Really low. Well, you can either, you could hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, pass, hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, or you could pass, hand it off to Marshawn Lynch, hand it off to Marshawn Lynch. So I, I don't care which order it is. It's totally. So the, for, for the non-football fans who are listening, the important thing is if you look at all of your decisions in life, you are more likely to look at the results, even if you made a, had a poor decision-making process associated with that, you'll think you were a genius. And I love that you even right. brought in the idea that some people text while they drive and they don't get into accidents. And that's still not a good decision. And no, it, but how and, many people do you hear saying, I'm a great multitasker? It's okay. It's not true. Yeah, so this is a problem that we have. And you can see this, like when you say like the world would be better if we didn't do this, think about business. How many times are you being dinged for a bad outcome that might've been a great decision? And actually there are managers who are like, we're results oriented. And what does that mean? Like you're luck oriented? Because right. I'm pretty sure that's what it means if you're talking about short-term results, because we don't think about these things in the aggregate. So basically what happens with resulting is that you get a good outcome. You think, oh, I should repeat that process. But you get a bad outcome and you think, oh, I should not do that thing. But Outcomes and decisions are related in four ways, not two. You can have a good decision that gets a good outcome, a good decision that gets a bad outcome, a bad decision that gets a good outcome, and a bad decision that gets a bad outcome. And the way that I can show you that is when I make it so that the decision quality itself is not up for dispute. 
Right. So the easiest way that I get people to think about that is like just going through intersections, right? So if someone goes through a red light and they don't get in an accident, do you consider that a good decision because they had a good outcome? I hope the answer is no. In the same way as if they go through a green light and they get in an accident, I don't think you think, oh, better stop going through green lights. Now, the reason why you can see that so clearly for that is because we know what the decision quality is. It is settled. It's not complicated. The rules of the road are really simple. Go on green, don't go on red. But the problem is that most decisions aren't like that. What do you do when it's like, who should I hire or or what project should I put my time into or who should I marry or what school should I go to? Or these aren't green light, red light problems. These are things that are very complex. And so when we go back and we look, we don't have a simple solution where we can say we went on green. What do we do? We say you've gotten an accident. We do the thing we shouldn't do. You got in an accident. So that must have been terrible. And we've all felt that, right? Like someone goes, picks a college and it turns out they don't like it. It's like, oh, what a bad decision. What a mistake. I should never have gone to this college. Someone else chooses the exact same college. They love it. And it's, that was such the best choice of my life to go to this college. Right. And the thing is that in neither case, do I know whether it was a good choice? Did you go because you really studied the majors and you said, here are all the majors that I think I'd be interested in. And it's strong in all of them and whatever. Did you go just because you were like, I want to play beach volleyball? Did you go because your high school sweetheart who you thought you were going to marry was going and you couldn't possibly be apart? And it didn't matter that they had no programs that were going to match you. If I don't have all of that information, I don't know anything. Totally. It might work out, it might not. Who knows? And one of the things that's great about you being both a practitioner of poker and a scientist, uh, a legitimate academician, is that you have made a gazillion and 12 decisions and you've analyzed them carefully. And I'm wondering, from your perspective, what are some just some things that the listener could do to increase the likelihood of making a good decision and perhaps overriding our preloaded default biases against making good decisions. Oh gosh. Okay. So let's see. Some, just so, some, some simple, I know you, your yes. books, by the way, are loaded with them, including exercises up the wazoo. You have incredible thought experiments that are. Yeah. So I would really, for, for this thing, I would really re- recommend this particular. For sure. How does this and on audible, it has a PDF about 82 pages. And I know, I know and you can go through it. It's a really comprehensive. It's a high value high value. uh, Yeah. So that's like really going to walk you through because that's like showing all of these tools. But what I'll do is like the tools are all in the book, but I'll give some big concepts. Big concept number one is it's really important when you're trying to figure out in retrospect, whether a decision was good or bad to actually think about what was the knowledge that somebody had at the time or I had at the time when I made the decision. Because a lot of times we forget that. And I think that we've all had that feeling of I should have known, why didn't I see it coming? In its worst form, I did know. So this is called hindsight bias. So I I have a funny example in the book where there was a woman speaking on like a cell phone in a store and she had an accent and a man said to her, are you Italian? And she said, no, I'm Greek. And he said, I knew it. I love that one. I remember that. And it was like, sure. no, you just asked if she was Italian. Exactly, (laughs) hindsight. I think I give the thought experiment. Let's say that I decide to go to a college and it works out. All of my friends are like, I knew it would work out. And if it doesn't work out, all of my friends are like, I knew it wasn't going to work out. I knew that you shouldn't go. I just didn't say so. And it's just, no, you didn't know because you did, because of course you couldn't know. So what we want to do is actually do some real knowledge tracking to say like, what's the information that I had at the time? What was the decision I made? What was the outcome? And then what revealed itself after the fact? And then 
once you see what revealed itself after the fact, you can just simply say, could I have known that beforehand? And mostly the answer is no, because you know what reveals itself after the fact, the outcome, and you don't have a time machine. Mm -mm. So that's a really helpful thing to do in retrospect. So like really try to think about what did I know at the time? Now, the clue here should be, if I really want to improve my decision-making, I shouldn't be doing this in retrospect. Instead, I should be. Do it when I'm making it. Right. Like it's pre-mortem, as you call it. Well, a pre-mortem is one way to extract that information. Mm It's a very specific exercise that allows you to think about that. The big step is this, is to say, if I'm considering an option, I want to go to a particular college, actually think about, don't do a pros and cons list because that will increase bias. I say so why in the book, but this is very common that it's a way to just reinforce your beliefs. And we don't want to do that because that's naturally what we do. Actually think about what sort of the range of outcomes that could happen. It's amazing. It's not so amazing, so on and so forth. Try to think about what the probability of those occurring is. So what's more or less likely. And so actually work it out as a little tree. Here's the option I'm thinking about. What do I think the chances this works out are? What are the bad things that could come from this? And how likely are those? And then you can compare options pretty well. And for any time that you construct a tree like that, just put down what your rationale is. Mm -hmm. Why do I think it's really likely that I'm going to like this college? And then you write down the reasons, what your thesis is. So you write down a rationale. I really think that I want to do mechanical engineering and I'm thinking about going to Rochester RTI and they're good in that or Drexel, which has a great whatever. I really like winter sports and this is in a place where there's winter sports and I believe that I want to go to a big college, not a small, whatever. You just figure Mm -hmm. that out. So that's all going to be in your rationale. So now notice what happens is that you have a recording of two things. One is What's the knowledge that's going into the decision? What are the things that I believe to be true of the world? And then what are my predictions for how the world is going to turn out? And notice now, when I go back to look at a decision, I actually have it all sitting there. Now, as you mentioned, one of the really good ways to become better at that particular process, which is trying to figure out what the different possibilities for how the world might turn out, given a decision is to do what's called a pre-mortem. So people know what a post-mortem is. It's okay. Here's a corpse. Let me figure out why it's dead. (laughs) But we do it in decisions also. And it's the same thing. Here's a corpse. It means something bad happened. You didn't meet your sales goals, whatever. The college turned out crappy and you're trying to figure out why. So that would be a postmortem. And so a premortem is a way to do that, to get ahead of, you don't need the bad outcome in order to imagine it. Basically, let's say that I were thinking about a college that I wanted to go to or a job that I wanted to take. And I said, let me imagine it's a year from now. And I hate this job. Mm-hmm. I just absolutely hate it. Why did I hate it? Why did I exactly. hate it? So you're doing this, you're doing this before and not after. So I'm thinking about taking a job. I say it's a year from now. Why do I hate the job? Why? And then you write those things down and that's actually going to reveal to you where the obstacles might be, what might get in your way, what the downsides of the decision might be. And you can see how that's going to help you fill out when we're thinking about what are the good things and bad things that can happen from any option that I might think about. It's going to help you to, first of all, notice more of that stuff and figure out what the probability of that is. So that's nice. It gives you a better look at the future. But the other thing that particular exercise does for you that's so amazing is it lets you figure out Three things. Should I change my decision based on that? Which mostly the answer will be no, but sometimes it will be yes, I should. But if I'm not changing my decision, how do I reduce the chances that those things are going to happen? And if they do happen, what am I going to do about it? Yep. And you want to do that in advance because the one thing that the cognitive science shows is that when we're in it, our decision making is 
awful. We're much better thinking ahead or thinking back. And we feel this, right? When we think ahead, we're like, oh, I should do this. When we're looking back, we say, I should have done this. We're in the middle. We don't do whatever it was that we felt like we should have done. To use your card playing term, because we're on tilt in the midst yes. of it. Now, I've got to ask this question because you and I have a lot in common and it's just getting to know you through your work and through your videos. It's just so much fun. One of the things that you and I share in common is a profound love of mentors and friends. I know that you uh, have a real kind of to borrow from Carol Dweck out of Stanford, the growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. You really rock that hard and you do so in the context of both your friendships and your mentor relationships, mentor protege relationship, mentor mentee, whatever you want to call it. And I'm sorry, just a little digression. I'm super into the TV show Scrubs. And one of the reasons I love it is everyone there is trying to get better at what they do. And you seem to do that in the context of your friendships. And that's part of, I think, a big part of your decision-making success. Is that consistent with your perception? You know, it's so funny. I don't know. Maybe this is part of my mindset, but I don't know that I would say that my, I wouldn't use the term my decision-making success. I think I'm terrible at decision-making. I think that I'm better than the average bear at it though. You know, I mean, I think that this is a mindset that I have from poker, mm-hmm. which remember I talked about like that infinite onion that every time you peel back a layer and you thought you had figured something out about the game, it was just like, you just discovered, oh my God, I know nothing about this. So game. much more. So like every step of the way, you're just like, I know nothing, but that doesn't mean that I felt like in comparison to most of that, not all, but most of the people that I was playing against that I hadn't figured out a little bit more than them. So while if you ask me in an absolute sense, how good was I at poker? I would tell you terrible. The game is just so complex and it's so deep and I just make a mistake on every single hand that I play. I also recognize that like whatever the difference was between me and most of the people I was playing against, like I was doing better than they were. I think that for my knowledge of decision-making and the quality of the decisions that I make, I would probably put myself maybe a little bit more in that category. In the face of the, what a perfect decision would look like every single day, I just like, I'm crap. I'm so far from that. But I think that I I do approach it in a way that does allow me to, on in general, like on average, make a better decision than whatever the base rate is. So I just want, I just would like to say that. Uh, that's uh, yeah. And I think you, that's although why. you married really well, I did. So. Marry, <laughs> I married a lovely, a lovely human being who I am deeply in love with. And I'm very happy to be married to him. And yes, but it took some practice. Sure. <laughs> Sure. And, and, and I had some and, practice. Like, I had some mistakes along the way. And post game analysis of the practice. I did. Really I did. did. I saw what was wrong. What, what didn't I, fit. I went into this one quite thoughtfully. And, and I think that you also had people with whom not, it wasn't just a solipsistic solo. No, no. You, you actually I, did it with people who, I did. who you trusted. And, and that's one of the places where I feel a strong kinship with you in that I would be nowhere without my consultation board. Right. They have been huge at doing pre-mortems with me, post-game analyses. And it sounds like you have cultivated a similar group of people. And and I just wanted to give that just a little airtime. Yeah. So the thing is that here's the thing about decision-making. And I think that we can all feel this when you're watching somebody else make a decision that's very obviously bad. It's it's like that slow motion in a movie. No, (laughs) totally. ah, You can totally see it. But when you yourself are doing it, you can't see it. And and this is this concept that Danny Kahneman talks about, which is like the inside versus the outside view. And I actually have a whole chapter on it 
in how to decide, which is we're naturally, this is motivated reasoning problem, right? We're naturally looking at the world through our own perspective, through our own knowledge, through, through very much what we want to be true as opposed to what is true. And there's a big gap between what we want to be true and what is true. There's a big gap between the way that the world is in an accurate sense and the way that like we, we interpret the world. So the issue is that in order to become a better decision maker, you have to find some way to see yourself from the outside. You have to figure out some way to get outside of your head and be able to see the world from all sorts of other different perspectives. There's a little bit of cognitive style issue, right? So Phil Tetlock would talk about hedgehog versus fox-like thinking. Say hedgehog is just like seeing the world just through one big idea, whereas fox-like thinking is like applying lots and lots of mental models, lots of different sort of frameworks to a problem. There's a little bit like some cognitive styles are a little bit more outside view than other cognitive styles. But mostly we even fox-like thinkers are still trapped in the inside view for in large part. And so how do you get to the outside view? Well, one thing is you could just find out what's true of the world in general. So you could look at some statistics, right? right? But one of the best things you can do is to actually get other people to view the problem that you're thinking about and elicit their perspective on it. And this is particularly important because two people can look at the same data and come to really different conclusions. Mm-hmm. And the collision of the way that you're modeling those facts, the way that you're thinking about them, the way that you, whatever those facts are telling you, what you think you should do about it. That space between the way that you view it and another person views it is where all of the really good decision-making occurs, where all of the knowledge gain occurs. And having great mentors, having a great group of peers who are willing to share their perspective in a way where it's not about just like echoing each other and high-fiving, but it's actually like really digging into the differences between the way that we view the world and celebrating that again in good faith. That's the way that you get to amazing decisions. So like, for example, you know, what you're talking about my husband, having made choices that I did not want to repeat, I actually did have a few people helping me from the outside to try to view that relationship outside of the way that I was viewing that relationship and check that. And I think that really helped the result along. But that's true of like most things. When I'm thinking about ideas for my books, I I talk to other people. It's interesting. I think that a lot of people, particularly when they're writing or they think, oh, I don't want to share this idea with someone because they might steal it. And I'm like, Mm -hmm. I want to share this idea with everyone because they might help me find out when I'm being stupid. Love that. They might point something out that's like a different way of viewing the material that I'm thinking about that's just going to make this book so much better, that's going to clarify my thinking for me. And like for the book that I'm writing right now, I think I've already had 30 different conversations with people, which are a mix of like academics and like sports coaches and founders of companies and whatever. And I'm just like hungry to have these conversations with people because their point of view, you know, it's going to make my thinking so much better. And I want the help. Because I can't do this on my own. Like, who could do life on their own? Like, no. Shoulders of giants. Before I did my TEDx talk, I had consulted with quite literally dozens of people to make sure that my stuff was solid. And right. it would not have been the same talk. It would not have been nearly as good. So I've got to ask my final question. And it's fantastical in nature. And Annie, this is just so okay. much fun to talk with you. If by some miracle you were conferred with the magical powers to give all of humanity the ability to rock just one skill 
a little bit better, what would that skill be? And how do you think it would affect the individual as well as society at large? Well, you know, the, the motto, slogan, the whatever, I don't know. It seems weird to have a slogan for nonprofit, but uh-huh. what we say at the Alliance for Decision Education is better decisions lead to better lives, which leads to a better society. <sighs> so the more that we teach people these decision skills, what you're really teaching people is to think about what is true and what to do. And what else is there? There's so much like loss of productivity, loss of happiness and well-being that comes from poor decision-making. And that's true for an individual because your life is an accumulation of the decisions that you make. And that's not to say, I just want to be really clear because I don't want anybody to hear this wrong. I'm not saying if someone has bad outcomes, it means they were a bad decision-maker. I hope that when we talk about resulting, that's very clear that I don't think that. And I also don't think that if somebody has a great outcome, that necessarily means they're a great decision maker. There's all sorts of things that have to do with luck. So like my life would be very different no matter what the quality of my decisions are. If I were born in 1600 or I were not born to the parents I was, or I were born in a different country, or if I'd been born 10 years earlier, the opportunities that would have been available to me as a woman, those would have been really different. Yep. So there's so much luck in the way that your life turns out. But the thing is that the one thing you have control over is the quality of your decisions. And so if you're continually making quality decisions in the aggregate, you're gonna be much more likely to have outcomes that you like. So that's the thing that we can really grab hold of and improve that's gonna help us make better lives for ourselves. And if individual lives are better, society's life is better. For sure. And that's just the thing. Because society is a collection of individuals. And if we improve individual lives, we're going to improve society. And I think in particular, right now, I know for me, I'm really feeling that gap between people's ability to sort through information and figure out what's true and to feel agency over their own decision-making in the way that they're engaging in like the political and societal space. So I feel like there's sort of two things. One is that decision-making is hard and we don't teach it very well. And fundamentalist ideologies, and I'm not just talking about religious fundamentalism because there's political fundamentalism as well. There's fundamentalism. There's fundamentalism in just like your, the diet, Mm -hmm. right? Or your exercise regimen. There's all sorts of places where you see fundamentalism, which is obviously very like binary thinking. Decision-making is hard and life is complex. And we like it when someone says, here's the answer, here's the rule, follow that. And you just take the nuance out and you say, do this thing. And I'm going to deliver the truth to you. And there's an attraction for individuals to those ideologies. Then you have the other side of things where there's, you also have a group of people who say, I know what's best. I know what's true of the world. And so I shall impose that on you. So the decision's already made. Right. As if like, we're not like a bunch of individuals who all might have different preferences. And as long as we're following that I'm not allowed to do direct harm to you, which is a very important rule. Hey, live and let live. And you're going to make your decisions and I'm going to make my decisions. And if you don't do direct harm to me, that should be fine. And I shouldn't feel the need to impose my worldview or my decisions on you as long as you're not doing direct harm to me. And I think that is is very hard for people because our decisions themselves become part of our identity. And so if you're doing something different to me, I think that we can view that as an attack on our identity, that you hold a different point of view to me. I'm like, why are you telling me that I'm wrong? Even though that's not what you're doing at all. You just have made different decisions. Right. So 
if we think about just like conflict, ideological conflict, if you really understand decision-making and you've really been educated, and I think a lot of that goes away, which would make life a lot happier. And individual lives would start to get better because you would have agency over your own decisions and you'd increase the probability that the quality of your outcomes would be better, less luck, obviously. What else is going to make society better? You tell me. Great decision-making like that feeds people. It solves poverty. It figures out climate change. It Yeah, I would actually, as we're closing, I would put it at the bottom of the hierarchy of needs. Really good decision-making processes will take care of a lot of the rest. And I want to thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and your exuberance about the topic itself and your humor, all everything you brought to the table. It's just been so much fun talking with you, Annie. Well, thank you. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 